Now, I asked you to open up to 3rd John, but I, I do want to lay some groundwork before we get there. So I'm going to ask you to, to keep your finger or bookmark there and turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. In the early days of the church, as recorded by the book of Acts, some astounding things happened to the apostles. Before, before Pentecost came, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, and in the days after Jesus was, was crucified, in, the, in those days, those early days, they, the disciples hid away. They hid away for fear of the Jews. They were afraid the Jews were going to come after them and kill them just like they killed Jesus. And, and, and yet, after Pentecost, a radical transformation occurs. Not only are the disciples not hiding out, but they boldly go into the streets of Jerusalem preaching the same message that Jesus preached and communicating that gospel. Peter and John are approaching the temple. And as they approach the temple, a lame man calls out to them and asks them for silver and gold. And you know the story. They say, silver and gold have I none, but, but such that I have I give to you. And by the name of Jesus, you would rise up and walk. And that lame man walked that day. You know what a miracle that is? When you get sick and you have to lay down for like a week, or maybe you break a leg and you can't use it for a little while. Do you know how your muscle just atrophies very, very quickly? You lose that strength. But in an instant, God brought healing to that man. Not only the nerves and everything that's connected to his brain and the strengthening of his bones and muscles and sinews, all that, God healed in an instant. That man walked. In fact, he, he was so healed, Scripture says that he was leaping for joy. Right? Leaping for joy. Well, fast forward a little bit. The people want to know why. Look at chapter 3. And I'm going to read to you Peter's bold preaching kind of in the shadow of the temple, right there at the temple gate. We get to pick up at verse uh, 13. The people are wanting to know what, what power that worked within Peter and John to heal this lame man. He says in verse 13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. He's not mincing his words, you notice. Very direct. Verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren 
To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now think about what he said. I, I want to read that whole thing. right? So you would hear how bold Peter is. He's in the shadow of the cross. He's in the shadow of the temple. Right? Who do you think is listening? Who do you think is listening? Pharisees, Sadducees, and the temple guard. And they enter the scene in chapter 4. So they come down and they arrest Peter. Because Peter's, Peter's telling them they crucified Jesus. They were guilty of crucifying Jesus. Even though Pilate, he has responsibility. He wanted to release him. But it's the Jews that would not allow Jesus to be released. And who insisted on this crucifixion. Right? That's bold preaching. They're arrested. And they're taken to prison. Do you think that would tame, tame them down a bit? Not one minute. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, this is to the Pharisees, Sadducees, to the temple guard. He's saying, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified. Can you just see it? Peter stared them in the eye. He's saying, whom you, using his bony finger, pointing at them, saying, you crucified. Right? He's doing this to the rulers. You crucified him. That, that, that's simply amazing. That, that's bold preaching. He says, whom God raised from the dead. So what is he saying? You opposed God. You crucified Christ. And God, yet God overruled you and raised him from the dead by his name, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders. I mean, the, the, the religious leaders rejected Christ. God overruled them and made Christ the cornerstone of the building. They were the builders. They were supposed to be the builders anyway. But they didn't recognize the cornerstone. He became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which he must be saved. Peter could have watered his words down. He could have just said, you know, God raised, you know, God did this or God did kind of generic God thing. And the, the, Israel, the Israelite leaders wouldn't have been so offended. But he's pointing at Christ, at Jesus Christ. How did the Pharisees and Sadducees respond to this? There's, there's something interesting that we might, it's just easy to, to read it and go on to the next account. Look at verse 13. This is talking about the, the Pharisees, Sadducees, temple guard. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. That's that last phrase. And having recognized them as having been with Jesus. Jesus taught in the temple taught at the gate, taught in, in, inside the temple, in the side of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He didn't let that bother him. 
He preached about the, the wickedness of the current kingdom and the need to repent. That's what, that's what Peter and John did. They, they noticed the confidence of Peter and John in, in, in the light of such authority. Like, how dare they speak to the leaders of Israel? These guys were uneducated fishermen. So how is it that uneducated, untrained fishermen, well, they, said, they judged it as untrained. Jesus trained them for three years. Then the Holy Spirit came upon them. They recognized these men as having what? Been with Jesus. And that's really the theme that I want to talk about today, right? That is having Christ so pervade every fiber of your being that you begin to look like him, not in a physical way, because that's not what the Pharisees and Sadducees were pointing on. Peter and John looked like Peter and John. Um, but it was the fact that they were preaching, the way they were preaching, the confidence they were preaching with, that they recognized these men as, as having been with Jesus. Do people around you recognize you as having been with Jesus? And, and since we know Jesus today through the pages of Scripture, do people around you recognize you as a, as a person of the book, even if they wouldn't put it that way? As having spent time with Jesus? Having been um, allowing the Word of God to impact your life? And I'll just use the phrase, allowing the Word of God to shape your life. The followers of, of Jesus Christ are to allow the word of God and take in the word of God, allow the word of God to shape and direct their lives. And, and that is the main point of, of today's message from 3 John. So please turn there or turn back there to, to 3 John. And we're going to see from 3 John that uh, the Holy Spirit gives us Christ honoring habits that, that really the word of God shapes um, our lives uh, by his word, by his truth. And I'm just going to read Third John to you. It's a short letter. So I'll just read the whole thing. Let's read that together. Third John, the letter to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you were walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be with you. 
The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Beloved, the Holy Spirit uh, gives us uh, Christ-honoring habits uh, that, that a person shaped by the truth. Um, and these, these I'm going to give you seven today. And, and we're going to look at the first four verses of this letter. And then the rest, of, we'll see several of the principles, the first three. And the four, I'll give you just kind of in staccato fashion, kind of like a, an introduction or an overview of this letter. A person is going to be shaped by the truth. And, and I just want to highlight seven of these Christ-honoring habits that, that shape the lives of those or that, that are involved with the lives of those who are shaped by truth. The first one is love. The first habit is love. A person shaped by the truth loves. And, and we see this even in the basic elements of the letter of 3 John. So when you, when you study a book of the Bible, you want to know who wrote it to the best that you can. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. You want to know who is it written to. Right? And again, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. Uh, you want to know uh, what the book is about. Why is it written? What is its purpose? You want to ask yourself these. And you also want to ask, what, what type of book is this? What kind of, we call that genre? Uh, is, is this something historical or is it a letter? In this case, it's a letter. Third John is a letter that follows the, the patterns that are very typical to a New Testament era letter. The author is identified first. The recipient is identified second. In this case, the author does away with a traditional greeting and he uses that, that space and whatever he was writing on to expand the prayer. So you see this in the Apostle Paul's prayers as well, that he adds a prayer into the greeting or introduction to that letter. And that's what the author does here. He adds a, a prayer and it kind of expands that uh, instead of just something simple like grace to you, which is a, not only a greeting, but a prayer. He expands that uh, for uh, the person that he's writing to. So third John is a letter written by simply identified by the elder. As I uh, will show, I believe the letter is written by the apostle John. The, the, the author simply identifies him as the elder. Now, the, the definite article, the elder, identifies this person as someone well-known. And even, even to the extent, extent that you would say it's a unique identifier. If he can say the elder, that, that shows that he is, he is like the only one in that, in that class or that, that category. By God's design, local churches are led by a plurality of elders. So this can't be talking about just a, a like a, a normal or average elder who is in a local church for then he would have to write something like, you know, one of the elders. I, I'm one of the elders of the church at Ephesus, for example. But he writes as the elder. Um, another helpful detail to notice about the author that we find in third John is found in verses nine and ten. In verses nine and ten, the author confronts diatrophies and he, and he tells tells uh, Gaius that and we learn that he wrote another letter that the church should listen to. He wrote with authority. He wrote to confront a, what likely a leader in the local church, Diotrephes, and he was expecting that whatever he wrote would be listened to. So he wrote as one with authority. Now, beloved, there's churches today that believe there are like pastors, and then there's like a, a bishops, and then there's archbishops. But, but biblically speaking, the word bishop, the overseer, 
is the same function, the same office as elder and pastor. So there, there isn't a hierarchy of leadership you know, that is supported by the New Testament. So churches have added that in. Um, so this isn't talking about like an archbishop. That didn't even exist. That, that was, it came later, much later, as the church expanded under Constantine right, and the early church. Did not exist at this period of history. So this isn't talking about like an archbishop or something like that. Another important detail that, that helps us identify the author is that, is that although we can't be conclusive of this, it seems like the letter was written in, in A.D. 90 to 95 in that time range. Um, so if we, if we think about that, um, in addition, we, th- we notice the little detail that 2 John is introduced the same way. So whoever wrote 3 John also wrote 2 John, right? introduced the same way. And if we piece those things t- together, then it leads us to believe that, that an apostle lies behind this letter somewhere. And it kind of makes sense. Because John, is, he's, he's, when he writes his letters, he doesn't begin them like Paul does. Paul says, you know, Paul, apostle, or called, or whatever. All, and all of John's writings, all the writings that we have that are attributed to the apostle John, he doesn't identify himself in the gospel of John. He simply identifies himself as the uh, disciple whom Jesus loved, the apostle whom Jesus loved. Doesn't use his name. And, and that, that's true even in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And he, he doesn't typically use his name. So it, it makes us, all of this leads us to the fact that, that the only person in, in when this was written, with the authority that he writes, with the ability just to say the elder and Gaius exactly knows who, who that is, right? that, this is none other than the Apostle John. And who is the Apostle John writing to? Who is this letter to? Well, that, that's clear. It's to Gaius. But who was Gaius? Um, although Gaius is a strange uh, name for us, it wasn't a strange name at that time. It was a very popular name to Greeks and to Romans. The name Gaius was one of 18 common names that parents gave their sons at that time. So they had a, they could give their, their children names, um, whatever they wanted to name them. But there were 18 that are common. Gaius is one of those common names. For example, we know the name Julius Caesar. But Julius Caesar was legally Gaius Julius Caesar. His first name was Gaius. And he received the name Gaius from his father who was named Gaius Caesar. So, you know, we, we use the term Caesar as, as an official political title, right? And that's how the word changed. But originally it was a family name, right? It was the Caesar family. That's where he came from. So the name Gaius was very popular. And there are uh, other occasions in the New Testament. There are uh, four other occasions in the New Testament where the name Gaius is mentioned. And scholars believe that, that three of those, that of those four instances, there are three different Gaiuses mentioned in, in the letter. But none of those match up with the Gaius of 3 John. So it seems like that Gaius, uh, the Gaius of 3 John, is unknown to us outside of the, the letter of 3 John. What do we know about Gaius from 3 John? Well, Gaius was a Christian brother. That, that John wrote to. He, he, he was personally known and loved by the Apostle John. He possibly would have been mentored or discipled by the Apostle John, for he calls him his spiritual children. We see that in um, verse 
4. He says, I have no greater joy than this to hear my children walking in the truth. Uh, it's not talking about physical children. Gaius was a man shaped by the truth himself. For he is described as being in the truth and walking in the truth. And from 3 John, we also learn that he was commended for having, for helping traveling um, missionaries, traveling ministers of the gospel on their way. And we, we, we see that they bear testimony of his love. We also learn from the letter that Gaius was experiencing conflict in his local church. So there was a, a man, Diotrephes, who loved to be first and did not want uh, Gaius to conduct the ministry he was conducting and sought to end that. And so he opposed Gaius. And Gaius was a, a person that the Apostle John really wanted to see personally. He mentions that at the end of his letter. And it's kind of interesting, if you see the end of the letter, he says, peace be to you, the friends greet you, greet the friends by name. So the, by the friends there, uh, we see that Gaius had friends right in the day before Facebook, I mean, Facebook. Um, but it, it, understand that the, the friendships talked about here are, are blood deep. By say blood, the blood of Jesus deep. These are talking about believers. And it's kind of interesting that he uses the word friends here, which you might think maybe is not as significant as like brothers, the brother, the brethren greet you. But I think what, what is interesting is, is that, is that um, John is going back to something Jesus said about love. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And that's in the context of talking about love. We'll see that in just a minute. But, but that the idea of friendship from, from John fifteen twelve carries the idea of not only love, but also obedience to the truth. Okay? So we can call each other friends as well as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that's what, what John is doing. So that's who, that's who Gaius is. That's, that's all we know about him. We know nothing uh, else about him. In heaven, you will learn more about him and, and can ask him many questions ab about this and what, he was, what he's like. And I'm sure that he would just point to Christ and said, it's not about me, it's about Christ. It's interesting that to see men shaped by truth love. Right? The apostle John became the apostle of love. Now, now, why is that interesting? I talked about this transformation that happened uh, with Peter and John, but let's just talk about John just a minute. I don't have time to develop it fully, but I want to highlight his transformation. John had a nickname given to him by Jesus. Do you remember what that it was? James and John, sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. I don't think that was a compliment, right? That gives you a little bit of insight into their characteristics. Right? They were brash, a bit foolhardy and bold as well. Do you know that John tried to hinder someone who is casting out a demon in Jesus' name? He wanted to hinder him. Why? Well, he's doing everything correct. He's depending on Jesus. The man wasn't following the disciples. So he tells Jesus, we, we tried to stop this man from casting out demons in your name because he wasn't following us. Right? What's the emphasis? Us. He wasn't submissive to us. So we wanted to stop him. We're, we're, we're the only ones righteous and doing what's right. And Jesus says, no, do not hinder. Do not hinder people like that are, that, are, that are doing so, um, that are with us. They're not against us. In other words, he's given them a lesson 
they weren't the only ones. They were the apostles, but not the only ones holding the truth. And, and then James and John connived together. Remember this story? They work, they got their mother because they had grand plans for themselves. They wanted to be, they weren't content with just being among the 12. They wanted to be at the top. The two brothers, they're like, we could do this together. We can get our mom, you know, and go to Jesus and ask for those top spots in the kingdom. Well, that's John. He's doing that, right? Put his mom up to that. And then, as they're ministering, going around ministering, and Jesus is traveling, he's traveling through Samaria. There's one Samaritan village, because Samaritans typically wouldn't have anything to do with the Jews, and the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans. So they were traveling through Samaria. Jesus was intentionally traveling through Samaria to go to Jerusalem to worship. And there's a Samaritan village that refused to receive Jesus. Refused. They just said, we don't even want, we don't even want you coming into our village. You know John's reaction to that? James and John, really. But John's in it. Jesus, do you want us to call down fire? That the wrath of God would consume them? I mean, it's drawn out in Scripture. Not making this stuff up. That's who John was. He was ready, he was willing to burn up a village, women, children, because they insulted Jesus. That's who John was, but that's not who he became. John was radically transformed. What changed him? I think Jesus' love displayed on the cross. He's the last disciple that's remaining. All the others have fled. But he's standing at the cross watching Jesus die. Jesus turns to him and says, tells him to take care of his mother. But he's the last disciple there. He witnesses the greatest act of love ever in the history of humanity. Jesus dying on the cross. Between that, the resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, John is a transformed man. Gone are the days of burning up villages or wanting to be first. That's why I, don't, that's why I think he doesn't list his name. He doesn't want the spotlight. Okay? He wants to love as Christ loved. And that's why in history, he, you know, he's the one that wrote the book of love. First John, test of love. So he wrote from experience, not just information from God. God did give him the, the, the inspired text of First John, but he also knew it by experience. If you don't love, John's saying, if you don't love, you don't know God. And he became known in history as the apostle of love. That's how radically transformed he was. So that man is the one writing this letter, and he's writing out of love. He's writing... Because he loves Gaius, right? Obviously, the Holy Spirit inspired this book. The, the, the circumstances which, which caused it is that the Apostle John got a report from brethren about Gaius' good work, about the opposition that Diotrephes was offering, and John knew, knew that this brother needed encouragement. And so John wrote to encourage. That's a practical expression of love. But also notice that, that John calls Gaius beloved, not once, not twice, but four times in this letter. That's pretty surprising in such a short book 
that someone be described as beloved? Right? That gives you a little insight right, as to a theme as well as to the reason why John was writing to Gaius. He wanted Gaius to know that he was loved right? and that he was cared for. So Gaius was under, undergoing that conflict in his church and John wanted to encourage him to do what is right. He's saying, I love you. Even though this person over here is, is doing what's wrong and treating you uh, in evil and unkind way, I love you. And, and notice he says in the beginning of this letter, he says, whom I love in truth. Right? This tells us that John's love isn't just superficial. This is a love that's connected with the truth of God. Right? I whom I love in truth. Gaius was a man consumed and and with the truth and who lived out the truth. As D. Edmund Hebert explains, he says, John's use of the term truth is never merely casual. And the term here denotes the fact that his love operates within the circle of those who know and practice the truth. Right? So Paul often uses the term like co-worker or co-laborer, co-minister. Here John is, is using the, the, the term love in truth to kind of signify very similar things. The Apostle John loved Gaius. He loved him in a very practical way. And all this is drawn out. These are two men who were shaped by love. Gaius loved these men who he hadn't previously met. He supplied their needs and sent them on their way. They gave the good report to John. John was a man shaped by the truth to love. And it, and it bears witness to the fact that the Lord's people love. Uh, in John fifteen twelve, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than he laid on his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. There's the connection between love and, and obedience amongst the disciples. John fifteen seventeen, This command I give to you, that you love one another. Or First John 3, um, 13, uh, verses, verses 14 through 16, he says, this is the apostle of love saying, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We also, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So he sets the standard. Christ is a standard. Christ laid down his life for us. Therefore, we are commanded to love as Jesus loved. We are to lay down our lives for our brethren. And, and, he, and he says that, that that is going to be true. If, if you love the brethren, it's evidence if you passed out of death into life. If you don't love the brethren, laying down your life for your brethren, he's saying that you do you abide in death. You are not, um, not you don't even know God. Um, he, he repeats that in Second John. He says, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one which we have had from the beginning that we love one another. So just, just again, just step back from a moment all this and, and see that there are these men, John and Gaius, shaped by the truth to love. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, these things will be true of you as well. Your life will be shaped to love the brethren, shaped to love friends, friends in the true sense that the Bible uses that term friend. And your love for the brethren will be growing. None of us have a perfected love. Right? Our love for each other and our love for Christ is something that should be growing and excelling all the more. We're to stimulate one another, what? To love and good deeds. How do we do that? By you loving. By you sacrificially loving others, you encourage others to do the same thing. 
you set an example wherever you're at. So look around you and notice brothers and sisters in Christ who could use some encouragement, who could use help and seek to meet the the assistance that they need uh, in love. Now, perhaps you can't meet the need yourself, but you can help ensure that need gets met. You can be part of the solution. And and think about this too. Does the does the truth of God determine who the circle of your most intimate friends? Do your most intimate friends are are those people who also love the truth? Because those friends will influence you. Now, I'm not saying don't be friends with unbelievers. We do need to be friends with them. But I'm talking about your closest acquaintances, your closest friends, the ones you would confide in and seek wisdom from. Are those people who are in the truth? They should be. You should have some friends. right? And again, if you don't, then invest yourself more in the life of a local church and build those friendships. Friendships are like that are uh, not easy to come by. The Lord provides the environment for those things, those friendships to grow and flourish. So a person is shaped uh, by, a person shaped by truth loves. Secondly, a person shaped by truth prays. And we, we see John go right into prayer in verse 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. It, it really, just as, just as it is impossible for a Christian uh, someone to be a Christian and not to love a brother, sister in Christ, love those who are part of the local church. It's impossible to be a Christian and not pray. I mean, you don't have to be a good prayer. You don't have to be a consistent prayer. What I'm saying is if if you don't pray, and I'm not just talking about some formal thing you do before your meal, but if you don't pray at any times, that is a red flag on your spiritual health and where you're at. It's assumed Christians will pray. Because we understand our dependency on the Lord. We understand that God is the one who provides for our daily needs, our spiritual walk and our physical needs. So true believers recognize their need for spiritual and physical help from God. And they recognize God as the source of that help. Now, John wanted Gaius to know that he had been praying for him. Again, this is something you do when someone's going through trials. John knew that Gaius was experiencing difficulty. And had done the right thing even in the midst of difficulty. So he wanted to know him, wanted him to know that he was praying for him. And notice what John prays for. John prays for two specific things, as recorded in verse 2. I pray in all respects, one, that you may prosper, and two, be in good health. There are two specific things prosperity and physical health. And you're thinking, is that really in the Bible? That's what the prosperity gospel preachers preach. Well, yeah, they, they do. But prosperity uh, gospel preachers twist the truth to make it mean what they want it to mean. Right? But it is biblical, a biblical prayer to pray for prosperity and health so that one can conduct ministry, which is why Paul was praying that way. Paul wasn't praying for prosperity and health like today's gospel, uh, well, not gospel, but prosperity gospel, Uh, guys do he's not praying for it so that Gaius can live the luxuriant life these guys get on TV and they and they or the internet and they beg for money so they can get a new 80 million dollar jet or a new watch recently uh, there was someone that that berated his church um, 
verbally. You can still see this online. He did apologize later, but it shows uh, his heart. He berated his church for not giving him the watch that he expected them to give. I'm not expecting a watch. I have one. So that the point is that today's fake preachers go after the money. Gaius wasn't interested in that. John is praying for him to, to prosper. And, and this is prosperity. The, the, he prays for him to prosper so that, so that Gaius can conduct, continue to conduct his ministry of helping gospel ministers on their way. Because Gaius would not only provide hospitality, he would provide them the means they needed, that means cash, to get to the next destination. He was supplying that need so they could continue their ministry. And at that location, they would go forth they would accept nothing from the Gentiles. These people would go out, these men would go out preaching Christ, preaching the gospel, and they wouldn't depend upon the Gentiles at all. So that means someone had to foot the bill for them to get there, had to foot the bill for whatever lodging or whatever uh, food they needed. Right? It wasn't so these men could live luxuriant lifestyles. They didn't live luxuriant lifestyles. It was so they conduct ministry. And the word the word prosper here is used in other, other places of Scripture that, that point to uh, even a successful journey. In a literal sense, uh, Paul uses it in, in Romans chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. So that word succeed there is the same word, translated prosper in third John. But here it's in a literal sense that I may that I may come to you, may succeed in traveling to you. That's its that's its literal meaning. But the term can also be used in a metaphorical or a figurative sense, just to refer to material or spiritual prosperity. And that's the way Paul uses the term in First Corinthians sixteen two. He says, On the first day of every week each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. So obviously the word prosper there is talking about financial means. You're to take some of what you earn, set it aside, so that when Paul comes that, that there already be a collection together and he won't have to do the collection. That collection wasn't for him, it was for poor saints in Jerusalem. So in Third John, the context shows that John is most definitely play, praying for financial gain. If you just look at it, he says, Beloved, I pray in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. So he uses the same term to talk about spiritual prosperity, but he's praying for financial prosperity, saying may your financial prosperity match your spiritual prosperity, which again is is where the prosperity gospel guys get it all backwards. They pray for the money, but they, they're destitute spiritually. They're bankrupt spiritually, and they want all the, the money to carry on a flashy ministry. But God knows that they're bankrupt. They're whitewashed tombs, most of them. Right? There's nothing to their lives. Right? But that's not how John is praying, because John knew that Gaius had a credible, mature, spiritual life and that he was spiritually healthy. And so he's praying that a spiritually healthy man would have the funds that he needs to carry on the ministry that God wanted him to do. And he prays for his health too, because that's needed. The health is needed so John can continue, uh, Gaius can continue this ministry to these itinerant preachers and those who are ministering um, the gospel to, to other lands, right, to other areas. So there's a, a praying for health. So again, 
when we pray about health, and we do want to pray for each other with our health regards, right? do, do we stop to reflect on the fact that we need good health, oftentimes, to do the ministry God wants us to do? Right? That's an important thing to add. It's, it's good to pray for your health, but when you do that, pray, Lord, Lord give me strength to do the, so that I'll have the, the strength to do the ministry you want me to do. Now, God doesn't promise good health right, to all of us. We, we know that from many different places, the book of Job. There are times where he calls his people to a path of suffering where your health isn't what you want it to be. So you can pray, Lord, give me enough strength to do what you've called me to do today. And you, even if you're in poor health, you can still minister to others, if nothing else, praying for them, and then writing them a note or giving them a phone call, letting them know that you are praying for them. So there are ways to, to serve the Lord even in the midst of poor health. So understand, that's, John is praying for prosperity, physical prosperity. He's praying for physical health so that, that Gaius can continue on his ministry. Um, I, I won't take time to look at this, but you could just see from the book of Philippians how much, how much it meant for, for the Philippians to take up an offering and send it to uh, Paul. Like Paul couldn't have done the ministry that he did without a church stepping in, supplying the funds, and sending that with one of their members to him. So they couldn't just do a bank transfer like we might do today. They, they relied on messengers in order to carry that, those finances and refreshments to Paul. Philippians 4 emphasizes this uh, to, a, to a large degree about uh, the refreshment Paul received uh, from them. So again, we're talking about prayer primarily. And letting how God's word shapes our life to be people of prayer. No prayer, no spiritual life. Little prayer, little spiritual life. Um, understand that, that God wants us to pray. And even just pray beyond looking in the mirror. Right? You need to pray for yourself. That's important. I'm not downplaying that. But pray for others. Find someone. Find someone who's who looks like they're their, their soul is prospering. They're prosperous spiritually. Pray for the Lord to cause them to prosper financially and prosper in good health so that they would conduct the ministry that God wants them to do. Uh, the Lord uses all sorts of people. The Lord uses some very wealthy people who he saves and then they, they, they donate much of their, their earthly means to see in the gospel spread. And we're grateful for those people. God God does a lot through them. But you know what? God does a lot through people who don't have a lot too. Paul also talks about that, how the, the Macedonians gave beyond their means. Even though they didn't have a lot, he says, they gave beyond their means. They wanted to participate. And, and so God uses all sorts of people. But the point is we, we pray. Pray for people to be raised up to conduct the work of the ministry. You all support the work of the ministry. Couldn't go on without your participation, your financial participation in the ministry here. We could not do what we do without that. So a person shaped by the truth uh, prays. A person shaped by the truth rejoices. Rejoices. And we see this in verses 3 and 4. For I was very glad when the brethren came, when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear my children walking in the truth. A person shaped by the truth rejoices, even in dark times. That's what we have to remember. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, Paul. Paul declares that's a command. Even he wrote that from jail too. So if he can rejoice 
in wise imprisoned, we can rejoice in our times no matter what happens. But a person shaped by the truth rejoices. When was the last time that you were very happy? Like really happy? Can you remember? What was it about? What was it about? Was it any was it anything that had something to do with the kingdom of God? It's kind of convicting even for me. Where is our joy? The love of God's truth caused John to rejoice in Gaius. The elder's joy resulted from a good report. You see that? I was very glad when the brethren came and and testified to your truth. Very glad. You know, these Christian ministers could testify of Gaius' love and told John about it. And undoubtedly, these, these brethren would have told John many of the specific ways in which which Gaius ministered to them. But they told of John's spiritual maturity. That is, his maturity is your truth. Look at that. He says, so I was very glad when the brethren came and testified to your truth. That, that's not talking about, that's not, not saying truth is subjective. What he's saying is that's your truth. He owned it. Gaius owned the word of God. What I mean by that is he internalized it and lived it out. He didn't know it perfectly. I remember all the letters weren't collected. So much of the scripture is going to be the Old Testament scriptures and then along with Paul's and maybe some of the early um, writings that were beginning to circulate amongst churches. So you've got Paul's writings circulating. But he had internalized it. He was a man shaped by the truth. Have you ever, uh, usually do this with kids, but usually have you ever taken a, or seen a, a celery stalk and you cut the bottom of it off? And you put it in a, a cup of water that has like food coloring in it, usually red or blue or something bright like that. What what happens? That that it, the celery stalk sucks it up, and you see the color even in the leaves of that celery stalk. It's a very simple illustration, but that's what the Word of God should do in us. We should be sucking up the Word of God so that it that it flows out of our lives. Now, obviously, we're imperfect with this, but. But that shows you how the truth should shape us. And, and Gaius was, and certainly John was. And, and notice that John talks about this. He says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. His greatest joy was for that. That, that, that says a lot about him. Now, when they talk about walking, remember that, that walking is often used in the Bible as a metaphor. A metaphor is a picture. Walking, you do that every day. You put one foot in front of the other. You're going in a direction. That term walking is used to describe spiritual living. And it's done that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's very common. In fact, God uses it himself to speak about how we are to live. In Exodus uh, 16.4, he says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven. This is the manna. I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my instruction." The Lord is providing lots of manna, but they were instructed only to collect enough for that day. You know that they were to trust the Lord for the next day's provision, and that was a test to see if they would walk in His instruction. The word "walk" there is meaning live. If they would listen to His instruction, Psalm one nineteen one says, "How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord." The walk in the law of Yahweh. 
building on that, Psalm 119, 105, which we'll get to in our, in our reading on Sunday, it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to, to my path. Why is that significant? So we'll know how to walk. We'll know where to walk. We'll know how to live. The New Testament uses the, the, the term walking as a metaphor for living many on many occasions. Ephesians 4, 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the a prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So he's saying, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The word worthy is like a like a scale. Think of that as like a, a scale where you have a weight on one side and a product on the other. And the product is added until it's of equal weight with the, with the known weight on the other side. So on this side, we have the calling, the high calling of us being children of God. And, and Paul is saying, walk or live in a manner that's worthy or equal weight with that calling. So it talks about how we are to live. And there are many other examples of this. So walking is living. And where is Gaius walking? He's walking in the truth. In the truth. And, and John says he has no greater joy than this. Now, if you are a, a parent, you can sort of relate to what John is saying. You want good things for your children. You want them to make good choices. You, you rejoice when they succeed. You rejoice when they graduate or when they land the big job or when they buy a house. But a Christian parent's greatest earthly joy is that children, number one, uh, know the Lord. They are saved. And secondly, that they're walking in the truth. They're walking in the truth. And, and, and if you're a parent, you understand that. There's a, a dear woman in this church who says, you know, the, the only thing she wants, right, is just to see her children saved. Right? Everything else. You can take everything else from me, but give me that. That, that's what we're talking. That's that great joy. Right? Uh, and it's echoed for us in our principalized in Proverbs 23, 24. A father of the righteous will greatly rejoice and he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. This was John's greatest joy. The apostles, the, the apostles greatest joy. The apostle Paul even echoed these things that um, of the great joy that, that he has when his disciples are walking in the truth. It's a parent's greatest joy. It's a pastor's greatest joy. You want to bring joy to your elders, to your pastors. Walk in the truth. Walk in the truth. No amount of money you can give can make up for not doing that. Right? Money is, is meaningless. In fact, we would say don't give your money if you're not walking in the truth. Right? We don't want your money if you're not walking in the truth. Right? Because we want you walking in the truth. Now just reflect upon that. To allow the word of God to, to shape you and shift some of your joy. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy and have earthly enjoyment. We're not saying that. But it's your greatest joy that of seeing people walk in the truth. People that you perhaps have taught or discipled. Um, to see them walking in the truth brings great joy. The greatest earthly joy. And why do you think? What does God get his greatest joy over? Scripture tells us heaven rejoices. What? When one sinner repents. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. Which I mean, needs repentance. It's just given an example. The Lord wants to rejoice over you by you walking in the truth. Even though you don't do it perfectly, I don't do it perfectly, 
He nonetheless rejoices when we are walking in the truth. That causes God joy. So it's good for us to echo that. And I also just want to say that I know that that parenting is difficult. You know, shepherding is difficult. If you're a parent with a wayward child who isn't walking in the truth, you sort of understand what pastoral life is like. You have people you minister to, you love them very much, they make unwise decisions, and they're wavered. That's painful. But know that the Lord knows your pain, and just entrust Him, keep praying, that as long as your loved one is breathing, there is reason to hope and reason to pray that they will yet know Christ and walk in the truth. Do not give up. Keep praying. There are too many. There are so many stories of particularly mothers, but fathers too, who prayed and prayed and prayed over decades, right? And their child only later came to salvation. So don't lose heart. And and just trust the Lord with that pain. He knows your pain. I mean, that's the ultimate example, right? Didn't the Lord create children who did what? Rebelled against him and walked away repeatedly. So the Lord knows your pain. Just cast that upon them. He will bear you up. He will give you joy for each day. Uh, know that he, he loves you and cares for you in that. Now, a person shaped by the truth um, loves, prays, and rejoices. Those are the main ones from verses 1 to, 1 to 4. I just want to give you in staccato fashion, very quickly, what I see as other habits of a person shaped by truth. From verses 5 to 8, which we're going to look at in, in the future message, we're going to see a person shaped by the truth, that a person shaped by the truth encourages. John wrote to encourage Gaius. Say, keep doing that. You did a good job. Keep doing that. Keep supporting these men in ministry. And then a person shaped by the truth warns. It's not that a person shaped by truth is always like positive and we only think we only do the positive things. Sometimes you have to do the negative things. We see in verses 9 and 10 that, that John warns. He warns um, Gaius about the ministry of Diotrephes and saying, don't, don't let him dissuade you. Don't let him change what you do. And then we see that a person shaped by truth discerns. In, in verse 11, we see, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. There's a call for discernment. You have to reject what is evil, pursue that which is good. And he's calling Gaius to do that in his behavior and the things, the ministries that he supports. Don't follow the evil ministry of diatrophies. Do what is good. A person shaped by truth commends others. We see that in verse, uh, verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. A person shaped by the truth commends others. Beloved, um, these are the habits that the, the truth envelops into our lives when we take in the Word of God. There are others. This is an exhaustive list. But from Third John, these are the Christ-honoring habits that, that, a, that a person um, adopts who has been shaped by the truth. Loves, prays, rejoices, encourages warns, discerns, and commends. Now think about the analogy we looked at in the very beginning with Jesus and his disciples. Would anyone recognize you as having been with Jesus? Ask yourself that. Has the truth of God shaped your life? If you're studying it, 
and asking the Lord to help to understand it and apply it, that the truth is going to shape your life. Right? Right? So what are we talking about? The, the Word of God shaping your life. So the more you study the Word of God, the more time you spend with Christ, the more you're going to be like Him. And others are going to see that. It's going to be unavoidable by how you live and the things you say, um, the things you do, the things that you emphasize. The people will see it for you to be a witness. And if you, if you don't see these things, if you read the Word of God and you just say, oh, it's dry, I, I don't really get anything from it, then it may be indication that you don't know Christ at all. And, and it's possible for you to be involved with the church for a long, long time and not be a, a believer at all. And so the call is for you to, to believe in Christ and experience the transforming power of God to, 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 to have you born again by his power to see with new eyes that you can understand and feed upon the word of God. And you do that by faith in Jesus Christ. By believing in him, he forgives your sins, transforms you, and takes that word and causes you to love his word. So if you need any any guidance with coming to know him, how to know him, please uh, see me today or see one of the other believers here. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Read the word of God and you'll be transformed by it. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word goes to work in our lives through your power the power of your spirit. And I just pray that even today you would call men and women to yourself in saving faith. And for those who are your children, Lord God, I just ask that you impress your word into our lives and the fabric of our spiritual DNA so that we would be thoroughly biblical in our outlook, in our things we say, how we live, that you would cause your word to embolden us so that we would speak with the boldness of Christ and with the authority given to us in the word of God, Lord, to call the sinners around us and our culture around us, the people around us who need you, to call them to repentance, to lovingly point them to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Lord, just impress your word upon our lives. It's the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.